Welcome to the Work Matters Podcast. In each episode, talking with thought leaders and executives, PurposeWorks founder Thomas Bertels explores what it takes to make work more productive, valuable, impactful, and meaningful. Let's begin the conversation. Welcome to the Work Matters Podcast. My guest today is Dr. Will Passmore. Will is a professor at Columbia University's Teachers College, and you're also a senior vice president at the Center for Creative Leadership, and you've been in this field of organization development, organization behavior for about 40 years, authored numerous books on succession planning, board governance, leadership transitions, change and so forth. I really enjoyed Bill's last book, Advanced Consulting, which obviously talks to what consultants are interesting in how you become more effective advising and working with senior leaders. And excited to have Bill on the show today. Thanks. It's great to be here, Thomas. Really appreciate the invitation. Work is really broken. I believe it is because we're looking at engagement scores. We're looking at the great resignation, the big quit. So if if that's true, that work is broken, engagement is low, why is it that so few organizations tackle those challenges head on? You know, it's really interesting that we have progressed in our society technologically and in, in many other ways. We haven't progressed as fast in our thinking about what an organization is or how it should operate. When people are yearning for being a part of a startup, young people are yearning for the freedom and autonomy that comes with being part of a startup, getting to decide what you do, what your contribution will be during the course of the day or the week. And they contrast that with a job in a traditional organization. What they see is that the job in the traditional organization, although it pays well and comes with benefits, also comes with a lot of constraints. The job description tells people what they're supposed to do, but it also puts a box around them and says, this is what you're not allowed to do. This is not part of your job. You know, other people do that. A lot of that other work is the kind of work that people are seeking. It's not the routine carrying out a function over and over again to fulfill some objectives that you set at the beginning of the year that makes people excited to be there. It's the sense that I can have some influence or control over what the nature of my work is and that it's it's leading to something that's also really exciting when I think about what the potential is in the long run for what this could do in my life. Now, not all startups are successful. As we know, most of them are not. But what we see are that people are getting better at startups and and they're practicing startups in the sense that they start and they fail, but they don't give up. They try again and and they become successful. And this, this model that has grown out from Silicon Valley to the rest of the world is starting to take hold that we don't have to live in an organization that we feel is constraining us if we don't want to. We can strive to be somewhere where I can bring more of myself into the work. And there's a future that's much brighter than anything I can imagine in the organization that I'm currently working in. I think that's where things are broken. Now, why why organizations don't do anything about that is your question. We have these outdated ideas about what organizations are and how they work that are left over from the days when we had to force people into jobs in factories to make goods. And that great industrial revolution that occurred in the country also was accompanied by structures of control from leadership that were meant to make sure that People did exactly as they were instructed to do in the grand scheme that we've concocted for how this organization works. And carrying over from that way of thinking to today are things like divisions of the company and job descriptions and levels in the organization, authority being required of 
of people to keep others under control in terms of what it is that they do, resulting in the person in the job feeling like this is not a startup. <laughs> this is not a job where I see long run potential for myself to grow and develop and maybe become wealthy. This is going to be more of the same for the next 30 years. I remember reading a book by Daniel Gilbert, a neuroscientist around like that we're really hardwired as human beings to want to have control, to influence, to shape things, to make things happen. And it's ironic that in organizations, the control and the power has been pulled to the top of the house, leaving everybody else starved. I think a lot of CEOs would probably agree and they probably see the great resignations. They see the best people leaving for startups and they have a hard time finding really attracting the top talent. So what do you think holds them back from making a move and saying, let's rethink how work gets done and let's broaden jobs and give people more of that autonomy and control that they're craving? I think that leaders are very fearful of losing control and they're being held responsible by lots of people for the performance of the organization, the board, shareholders, the public. So the idea of making things less structured and less dictated in the organization is frightening to people who have that kind of responsibility. But it's also a matter of how they were brought up and who they are as individuals within companies that work that way. So that's what they've known. That's what they expect of themselves and of others. So it's hard to imagine how it would work. I've never lived in an organization like a startup. You know, we were talking about learning to work in a startup. If you've only worked in a regular organization before, it's not something that comes naturally for someone who's worked in a very structured, well-defined environment to work in a startup environment and to know whether what's happening is what's supposed to be happening. Is it productive? Are we getting somewhere? Because we aren't setting clear goals every day and holding people accountable for achieving them and giving people instructions as to what they should be doing right now. And this feeling of not being in control of those things makes me very nervous if I'm responsible for the performance of the organization. And I'm counting on people to make choices for themselves that are going to get us to where we collectively need to go. You know, not all startups are successful. So there's data out there that would worry any executive if they looked at the success rate and they said, well, you know, most startups fail. If I were to operate my company that way, there's more than a 50-50 chance that we would fail. We may not be achieving the pinnacle of what a startup organization would allow us to achieve if we could operate successfully that way. But we're eliminating a lot of risk by imposing control. And I'm willing to make that trade-off, that we won't be great, but we'll be pretty good and we'll be consistently pretty good. Yeah. And as an executive who's responsible for everything, I feel more comfortable making that choice than rolling the dice on creating a startup atmosphere here and just seeing what, let it, let it go and see what will happen. And also not all startups are it's like this utopian ideal of people can take as much responsibility as they can carry and work on big audacious goals, right? Some startups clearly replicate a big company model inside a very small company. That can be also very detrimental. But I mean, we're talking more about the idealized version of a startup. I mean, there got to be like a middle ground there somewhere though, right? It's not either or, it's not black and white. So you come out of the sociotech movement where people are really went into the workplace and, and drove real change right through action action research. And and I feel like a lot of those lessons that were learned in the 70s and 80s kind of got lost over time. What are some of those lessons that I think we might have to learn again? So at one extreme, we have this idealized startup situation. Everybody walks into work every day and does whatever they think is the right thing to do to advance the, the future of the company. At the other extreme is the industrial bureaucracy where everybody has a job description that really limits their contribution. And in the middle is this idea of a 
system. We called it a socio-technical system in the old days because it was about people and technology and how they worked together to produce outputs that the organization needed to produce. And we realized that the people who designed the technical system for people to work in were engineers or technology designers who didn't understand the experience of doing the work and didn't do it every day and didn't see some of the things that people doing the work might see in terms of what goes wrong or how it could be improved. And so the fundamental idea was let's ask the people who have firsthand experience with the work to help us improve work processes and even provide feedback to the designers of technology and technical systems so that they could get better over time because people on the shop floor, so to speak, have ideas about that. And when we empower teams to take actions that make their work processes more productive, higher quality output, lower cost output, more concern about each other as human beings and their experience that they have in working together and things that they can do to affect that. And we stop paying people purely as individuals in roles, but we start to look at pay connected to outcomes of the system in some way or outcomes associated with learning. Then we start to see the system ease up a little bit on control from the top down and start to develop control from the inside out. We have people who are more capable of understanding how the system works and therefore more, also more capable of improving how the system works. And we get better over time, significantly better over time. So we don't have to choose between the extreme of no control. We'll just let everybody come in and do what they want every day. Or we impose total control. There's something in the middle where we share control and we share the ultimate development of the organization over time with people who work here. And that can work in today's world as well, in the kinds of organizations that we all inhabit these days that are more dependent upon people's brains and their knowledge than just the tools that we've designed for them to work with. In fact, it makes more sense today than it did in the industrial era for us to say, shouldn't we be tapping into the minds and the capabilities of people, the competencies, their vision, their creativity. Shouldn't we be doing more of that, given that we're so dependent upon their commitment, so dependent upon their ability to help us solve problems or innovate? Wouldn't that be a good way for us to move forward as an organization? Because we need that in order to succeed in a world that's constantly moving ahead and adapting to new things. And yet we still operate in, in an old-fashioned mode. I can recall just an example of working with a research organization where innovation is supposed to happen in research. You hire people because they're really, really bright scientists. And there was this traditional hierarchy where you had to put in your time to become eventually a project team leader and put in your time there to get higher up. You know, I was asking one of the team members about what their aspirations were for their career. And they said, well, I really want to get promoted eventually to project manager. And I said, well, why? And they said, because then I get the team to work on my ideas. The privilege that comes with promotion is I finally get to tell people what I think we should do. But then, then I become the controlling force, right? And the people who are working for me don't have a say in that. I finally get to work on the ideas that I think are important. I'm the one who's entitled to set the direction here. And these people are working for me because they've agreed to take this job and get paid to do that. We have this contract that I, I do the thinking and the leading and they do the following. That's what creates the disconnect between the kind of organization that we would want to see where everybody's contributing the best of their thinking and the kind of organization where a leader says, I'm really comfortable with the fact that we're working on these ideas that I think are great. What's it going to take to break through that and, and really rethink how work is being done and design it really more with human needs in mind? 
Well, a couple of things. First of all, you said it earlier. I think it's all about talent. I think that we are recognizing how important talent is to the future of our organizations and that we need to do something that's going to allow us to take full advantage of the right talent presuming we can get it, which means we have to offer attractive work to people in addition to attractive salaries, because frankly, everybody's offering attractive salaries out there. And if it's just money that people are are going after, then there's always a better offer around the corner and people will continue to move based on those offers. But if it's good money and I'm really attracted to the work that I'm doing and the social climate of the organization that I'm a part of, the values of the organization that I belong to, 68% of people, according to Fortune this month, said they'd be willing to change jobs if the company that they're moving to has a better commitment to social values and protecting the environment, et cetera. So 70% of people, would be willing to move for the same money that they're making today if the company stood for something versus didn't stand for something. Well, that's that's pretty significant. And I think it's indicative of what's happening in the world today. But the point is that talent will drive change in a way that it hasn't before, that it's never been more important than it is today to get the right talent and keep the right talent in organizations. And I think it is causing leaders in organizations to ask these fundamental questions like, what are we doing wrong? Why are people resigning? Why are they leaving us? We're, we're offering good pay and benefits. We're telling people, please talk to us before you go because we'll make sure that you're comfortable here. And yet people are still leaving. You know, why are they leaving? Well, they're leaving because they sense there's something to go to that's going to be better. And if that's the truth in the market, then there will continue to be movement towards something that's better, which comes to point two, which is we're learning a little bit about what's better. And organizations are starting to see that this kind of outdated top-down bureaucracy is just not doing it for people who want to work in something that's more like a startup environment. Most organizations just couldn't keep up with the need for agility and speed that you need in a startup environment, right? They're not geared for that. But to your point, I think there probably is a middle ground that says maybe people don't want that extreme startup setting, but they certainly want something where they feel they have more control and can bring more of their own self to work and, ha- and make an impact, right? I think we all wake up in the morning, go to work, and I think we want to make a difference and work on something that's, that's bigger than ourselves. The question is, to what extent does the work permit us to do that? I'm wondering also, I mean, you, you have a front row seat there because you're teaching the changes over the generational successions, right? So if you look at millennials or Gen Z, right? Are the attitudes of those newer generations fundamentally different than mine or yours? I hear things that sound different to me. We are told we have to wait and see how people actually live out their careers over decades to see if the values are dramatically different and will hold up over time. That over time, as you take on more responsibilities, more debt, have families, that we we may see a return to something that values more security than pure experience. But what we do see, at least from a starting point, that's what I'll comment on, (laughs) is how the starting point has changed over the last 20 years. And it's not that this next generation isn't ambitious, it's just that they have a different ambition. You know, I want to experiment with my life and see where I want to go before I commit to something. I think if people find something that gives them a sense of purpose and mission, I don't think that they would delay or or they would... No, right? That's right. They wouldn't invest right. in, in making this like a long-term commitment and stay there five, six, no. seven, eight, nine, ten years. The inverse, I think, is also true that if that's not there, then it's going to be a very transactional, I'm going to collect the stamps, my passport, and, and, and move on type situation. Yeah. 
Well, we, we started out when we in the conversation that, you know, work is broken. Uh, I, I think we talked about that's like attracting talent is really, uh, I think the, the, the game, right? That, that needs to, uh, that, that needs to be won. Um, and there are, I think, good reasons, I think, for, for leaders to, to rethink, right? How they, um, what their work product is and how they attract, it's like the, the best and brightest, um, to, to help them, uh, do build something meaningful. But we also talked about that a lot of leaders kind of like, like from a mindset perspective, have a really hard time getting there, right? Because it's kind of like it goes against everything that, right? We, we trained for the last 20 and 30 years in a way, right? Um, so, so, so what do you see as, as the differentiators? Uh, what makes leaders that jump into this space and say, they're going to be a better way of doing this and I'm willing to, you know, rethink how the workplace operates. What do you think is the difference between that group and, and everybody else? Well, if, if you think about how other things become adopted in the world, this is the same process that Kuhn talked about in paradigm shifts in science, that we start out with a few people who are the leading edge thinkers and experimenters who aren't afraid to try something new because perhaps they have no choice. That's the only way they can win or survive is to do something differently. Or they're just, you know, revolutionaries who want to do something very differently. And they seem odd at first, but then others start to see that it works. And then you have a few people copy them and and then it becomes the new norm for how things are done. And I think that's where we're at on this journey to a different kind of organization and different kinds of work is that there have been already organizations like Gorin Associates, others who have illustrated that you can do things in a different way and that it's, it's not a disaster. In fact, what we've discovered in, through those experiments is that we can maintain control in a different way than we have traditionally. We rely on different mechanisms of control. We educate people. We train them in what they need to know in order to understand what's going on. We then build their commitment and responsibility to the success of the organization. And armed with knowledge and capability and a commitment to the success of the organization, control from others is not as required as it would be if people were in the dark about what was going on and, and weren't very committed to what the organization was trying to do. So when we start to address those fundamental issues in organizations, helping people understand what's happening so that they can contribute meaningfully to the way things are done and through that process, develop deeper and deeper commitment to the success of the organization because they've helped to build that organization and how it operates. Leaders can then step back and say, okay, I'm now capable of delegating more to people who really get it and are committed to it. And I don't have to tell them so much what to do. When leaders make that shift to, oh, that's how I can stop being an old-fashioned leader, to that's what it takes to become a modern leader in a world where change is happening extremely rapidly, technology is continuing to advance, people need to help us to adapt and innovate in ways that we can't figure out ourselves as leaders. We need their help to do that. When all of that clicks in place and we say, ah, that's how it's done. And there are enough examples of that on the part of other people who are making that work as an approach, then it's like lean manufacturing or total quality. Oh, I get it. That's how that's done. I can learn how to do that as a leader. And I will learn how to do that. And I will start selecting leaders for promotion who know how to do that. And I'll start selecting CEOs who know how to run that kind of organization. It makes sense. That's how it should be done. As that 
shift happens, and it'll take another 10 years, we'll start to see more and more organizations emulate the best parts of what we see in startups and still keep control because people are understand what that means and why control is needed and, and help us to control organizations instead of fight against control. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I was just thinking back at the start of my career, I started a company called ABB, Azir Brown Bavarian. And back then, one of their claims to fame was that they had like 350,000 employees, but they broke it down into like 5,000 profit centers. There were groups of like 35 people. They did financing for power plants. And that was kind of like in the early 90s, right? And then, of course, some smart accountants said, well, we've got 5,000 profit centers, that's 5,000 head of HR and 5,000 CFOs that, right, can we get some economies of scale? And and then that got dismantled. But I thought it was a very interesting model and it's deja vu all over again, right? If you look at companies like Hire or, or Gore-Tex, we learn so like the same right lesson experience and say, no, 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 there is something about small, agile organizations that can respond to market needs and we'll design it that way. And I feel like there's like a, a treasure trove of, of learnings, right, over the last 40, 50 years for people to move into that space and take advantage and learn and try as, as many things as they can and try to get their organization in better shape. The joke was the was the two hunters and the bear, right? You don't need to outrun the bear. You just need to outrun the next guy. Well, it is a bit of a mystery why um, the, the forces of the competitive market don't act on organization and leadership in the same way that they act on products. Because if I don't make a good product compared to the competition, or if I charge too much for it, you know, the consumer finds that out fairly soon and forces me to do something about that. And while the organization and the way that we lead people and the way that we design work for people does affect things like the price of products or customer service or innovation. For some reason, the, the competitive market doesn't act in the same way to, to drive out those companies that are not on the cutting edge of those practices. We're, we're able to maintain a certain amount of inefficiency or less than ideal leadership and still survive in the marketplace for whatever reason. I guess there's a little bit of slippage <laughs> between how we run the organization and, and how it's evaluated by our consumers buying our products. I think that's very interesting, actually. I think we're seeing a change for sure, right? Because organizations like Glassdoor, now you have more data around what's it really like working inside. But you still have the issue of what people sell you the job is and once you're kind of like in the door. Right, what it really is and how many degrees of freedom do you actually have, right? It's oftentimes a big difference. I think in the past, probably people said, well, I just quit my old job. Now I'm here. I got nothing to go back to. But I think as you also earlier pointed out, I think for this new generation, I think they're much less afraid of having that three months stint on their resume because they're saying, hey, I went there. I hated the work. I hated the company. I did something else with my time. And I think that becomes much more accepted. It's a little bit like divorce rates, right? Where people say, well, you know, if you made a mistake and you married the wrong person, right? Till death do your part, that model doesn't apply anymore. I think probably that's why the divorce rate for employees <laughs> right, separating themselves from their, from their employer, I think, are, are, are ticking up. But then again, it's like, I think it's actually an interesting analogy. You still find the organizations that have a good product and they're able to retain people there for 15 20 years and really building up deep institutional knowledge and competence versus the revolving door where every three months a new person comes in and you just fight attrition and we should remember that people do vary in their personalities and, and wishes and desires from work and we're talking in fairly general terms about what you know high achievement uh, high growth oriented people will want from work but there are many people who don't 
desire those things still. I mean, the people who are very comfortable in routine jobs are not looking for that kind of environment, that kind of work environment. They're, they're very happy to continue to do what they've always done and, and are loyal to their employers for providing them with a good salary and benefits and, and are happy. And there's, they're not unhappy. They're not saying this job is terrible and I, I'm going to leave. There's still a large percentage of people who are geared towards that kind of work and they'll find their way to those companies in those industries where that's what is offered. But some of the people that we are most enamored with thinking about are the ones who are leading the way, the young (laughs) Elon Musks and and Jeff Bezos. Who are those people and where are they taking us? And, you know, what are they looking for from work and how do we get them to work for us? Those are people who, the Steve Jobs of yesterday, who are they today? And how do we get our company to grow that fast? And what do we have to do to bring them in and put them in an environment where, where we'll have that kind of impact from their being a part of us? So we we tend to focus there a lot more, perhaps, than we should. Well, because that's where you win the game. Because it's like if you got a bunch of people that, you know, they're they're right, they want to be jazz musicians, but they need the job to pay the bills. Well, that's going to be difficult, right, to be competitive if you only have people that want to be jazz musicians, because that's where their passion and energy goes. Yeah. And we need a mix of people because we do need people to do the finance and the accounting and the the routine HR work and all of the things that we need to do in organizations. So not everybody's looking for the kind of work that we've been talking about, which is... And it's not binary, but but I also think that, I think there are a few people who say, I want a job with no autonomy, like no feedback, no variety of skills, right? No visibility of the entire work product. I'm okay with working with tools that quite frankly make my job even harder than it has to be. Right. And, and, and I know the work is absolutely meaningful in the great scheme of things. Right. I mean, nobody is really looking for that job either. Right. <laughs> we hope not. We hope not. I think the other two variables in that regard that come to mind, one is ownership that people can really say, this is my work. I own this. Mm-hmm. I can make a difference here. And I think the second variable might be winning or being successful or, or being able to make an impact. Or at least feel like we have a chance. Yeah, you know, we have a chance to win. But what I see oftentimes in these white collar environments, right, where take big corporations, there's a lot of different projects going on. There's this tremendous waste of people spending enormous amount of time and energy in developing an initiative and putting together a proposal. And then at some point, somebody pulls the plug and says, well, that's very nice that you've been working on this for nine months, but this budget shortfall, we're going to might kill this project out over here. That's the other piece. I think people want to see things come to completion and come to fruition and get to an end point versus being this endless cycle of developing plans that most likely never going to get acted on. And I think it would be interesting if we could plot the energy map in organizations of where the energy is, where the ideas are, where the desire to really move things forward lies. I think people would be shocked to see that it's not in higher leadership levels, that people at that level are not feeling great about the organization they're part of. They don't like the relationship they have with their peers often. There's a lot of conflict with other divisions. There's a lot of pressure to get the numbers out. And it's not like they're feeling great about what they might do to help the organization be more successful. So when you find energy in an organization, it's precious. And where does it exist? And how do you fan the flames of that energy and keep it alive and growing as opposed to putting out the fire with a hose of bureaucracy or... (laughs) I remember... Working with a client and, you know, they're basically, this is a couple of billion dollar division of an even larger company. 
And at some point, they had a, they implemented a rule that for everything over $50,000, you had to get approval by the CEO. And I think it's a fantastic vehicle to kill off any initiative in the organization because why would anybody be so foolish and say, I have a great idea, but it costs $51,000 and I'm going to expose myself to all the different layers in the organization until I get to present to the big guy who then maybe says yes or likely says no, right? I thought it was a, it was a great way to really make sure that, that no good ideas or bad ideas will, will ever get brought forward ever again. Which is why in a lot of the organizations that I interact with, the ideas that bubble up are not ever through formal channels. They're on the edge. There are innovations that are happening around that people are excited about that they're not, they're not telling people about yeah. because they're afraid they'll get noticed and, and <laughs> have to go through all of that, right? And these days it's so much easier, right, for employees to say, I have a great idea. If it's very difficult to make that happen inside the organization, well, People are feeling that. It's like, wow, the, the world wants innovation. They're willing to pay for that. There's money out there. I can raise money, whether it's Kickstarter or, or through venture capitals. I don't have to be constrained by an organization in terms of what I can do. I can get some friends together and we can make something happen. I think in the tech world, I think a lot of acquisitions are, quite frankly, just talent acquisition. Where, That's you right. know, it's the acqui hire, right? Where you say, <laughs> well, you know, we're going to give them two million bucks, but then we get them locked down for three years or four years while they get their earn out. But I think, again, that's also a very expensive way of doing business. And then again, also a disservice to the people that you already have in the organization to say, well, what about my ideas? It doesn't hold up for the long run. As yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Not a good long, long-term strategy. Listen, Bill, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the podcast and talk to us. Pleasure. So here are my takeaways from the conversation with Bill Passmore. One, I think he's absolutely right that while organizations realize the expectations of employees have changed and people expect more purpose and autonomy, the main reason that that's holding us back is really that, that CEOs play it safe and are risk averse. And they're looking at these new ways of working and they're concerned about the ability to control that. But the reality is that there are already organizations out there that demonstrate that these new ways of working don't necessarily lead to a lack of control. It's just replacing one form of control, direct control, with a much more powerful one, which is being controlled from the inside out. And there are already organizations that demonstrate that, whether it's in the startup world or in organizations like Gore-Tex. So to get there, we need knowledge and capability and a change in how we lead. That means that leaders need to learn a different way of doing their work. And it really goes to the heart of leadership. If we look at leadership as I'm entitled to set the direction that will prevent us from making full use of the employee potential on which we are so dependent. I also believe that he's spot on with the observation that energy in organizations is precious, so we shouldn't waste it through poorly designed work. That's my takeaway from the conversation with Bill. I tremendously enjoyed it. I hope you did too. See you on one of the next podcasts. We hope you enjoyed this discussion. If you did, please subscribe, like, share, or comment. Until next time, Let's make work matter.